Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, breaking news out of Washington. The U.S. government has made an arrest in the Benghazi embassy and consulate attacks. More on that. Also this week, ISIS insurgency in Iraq. This is a new clear and present danger for the U.S. and a political danger for the White House. Special guest, Dr. Alex Crowther, senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation and former assistant to the Supreme Allied Commander NATO Forces, joins the discussion. The GOP continues to eat its own by showing House Majority Leader Eric Cantor the door in Virginia 7th. What is the fallout for the GOP? Children in crisis, detention centers in our southern border, a serious situation in humanitarian and political law for the administration. This and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, ironically, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. How do you do? Welcome back. We missed you. Well, I'm delighted to be back. Is your colon feeling better? My, my colon, <laughs> my colon is feeling better. That's good. Do you want to explain the whole thing? No, I just wanted to know if your colon was feeling better. I want to tell everybody about my operation. Okay, no, no, well, we'll do that later. That's going to be your tell me a story. Uh, to my 11 o'clock across the table is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation, former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hello, Justin. Glad to be here again. And to my 12 o'clock, directly across the table where I like to have him, he is longtime Senate staffer and the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs. He is a very distinguished, handsome, and factual fellow from the Simpson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my 1 o'clock across the table, he is longtime Washington Insider, former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox, and former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He is Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And to his left, he is the, which ironically is true, <laughs> he is Washington-based attorney, political operative, and just a really, really liberal guy. He is Dan Littner Esquire. Hello, Dan. 
Hi, glad to be here, Justin. And to my right, ironically, she is the former general counsel to the House Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson and former Obama appointee as general counsel to the Maritime Administration. She's the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. We have got a huge show. Joining us here at the 430 Hour is going to be Dr. Alex Crowther from the RAND Corporation talking about the Iraqi insurgency and the ISIS issue that's facing the administration. But we've got breaking news coming out of Washington. It was announced earlier today that the U.S. has made a raid inside Libya and has in custody at this point Ahmed Abu Katala, the mastermind behind the Benghazi attacks that occurred on September 11th, September 12th, 2012. Uh, in that, in that uh, assault on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, uh, four Americans were killed, including Ambassador Chris Stevens, who at that time was a very well-respected member of the State Department. Chris Stevens was also very well-liked by many in uh, that part of Libya. Uh, his life was taken from him in this attack. What we know right now is that uh, Katala was taken into custody in a secret raid led by U.S. Special Forces, supported by FBI Special Operations teams. Uh, there were no civilian casualties, according to the Pentagon. All U.S. personnel in the operation have safely departed Libya. And as of an hour ago, Secretary, uh, Attorney General Eric Holder, in a joint statement that coincided with a statement coming out of the White House, has announced that Katala is, in fact, on his way here to Washington to face trial in a civilian court. Uh, the last we said is that charges could be filed. Charges have apparently been filed prior to his uh, arraignment in federal court here in D.C. Uh, the charges include murder and destruction of a federal building, uh, as well as many other stacked, I'm sure, charges on this. Uh, but so here, here's the question is, number one, this is a key announcement by the, the Obama administration, Congressman Al, in a time where foreign policy just continues to be a prickly cactus in the rear end of Obama. Is, is this a good thing that they can make this announcement now that this operation was undertaken, at least for the Obama administration right now? Well, yes, but the mistake was made a long, long time ago, and almost anything anyone does now is not going to make it well. Is, is, Alan Moore, when you look at this, and you look at the timing on this, I mean, it, it's obviously good news. It's a, a, a terrorist who's brought to justice, no, no civilian casualties, all Americans involved with the operation come out relatively unscathed. Uh, this is good news at a time when the Obama administration could use good news. But it also seems to me that this doesn't uh, necessarily quash any of the questions about what happened in Benghazi and the administration's handling of Benghazi afterwards? Well, it doesn't speak to what, uh, what the administration did afterwards, but we've answered most of the questions, I think, about what actually happened on the ground. This is a guy who apparently was one of the leaders, uh, if not the leader, in putting it together. Now, there's an interesting question. He's apparently lived relatively openly and so one of the questions that one just has is why now why now could we have gotten him before and i don't know i mean I, we, we may we may learn answers to to some of those questions believe me i'm very glad we got him uh and he he clearly knows he knows a lot it would be nice to know what we could about other bad guys other guys who were involved in it where they are it would be great to 
to make make some additional captures, potential arrests. Um, and uh, but it, you know, the, the the issue about how the White House handled things after the fact, Susan Rice's famous um, misstatements on five uh, five TV shows on a Sunday morning. This doesn't really speak to that. That will that will sort of live on, unfortunately. I say unfortunately because we've devoted uh, a lot of time and attention to there are other things. The Susan Rice. <laughs> Dan Lipner, when when you look at this now, apparently, according to uh, AP and CNN, uh, the charges, the indictment was filed last July. And going off of what Alan said, there are several media sources that are reporting that this guy was just pretty much walking around East uh, Eastern Libya just in plain sight. It, 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 it's going to be easy for some opponents of the administration to say, wait a minute, You've got the Iraqi situation coming down on you. There's still unanswered questions about Benghazi. Is this just a, an opportunity for the uh, administration to divert attention away and say, ha-ha, look what we did. Not only did we get bin Laden, but we got the guy who got Chris Stevens. I am quite certain uh, Daryl Issa will not only subpoena him, but ask him about his relationship with Hillary Clinton and how they timed this thing to come out <laughs> Really, really. Denise Krepp, does it, does it surprise you that they're actually bringing him here to D.C. for a federal trial? Because there are a lot of people that were calling for him to go to Gitmo and then hash out the details later. No, it, it doesn't surprise me. Um, I want to go back to the one question you asked a second ago about timing. It takes a lot of time to work this type of an operation. This isn't something that you plan in 24 hours. This involves um, – wow, this is involved. This would involve – Who's going in? How are they going in? Do you need country clearances? That's on that side. Then it's, you know, what do you do in country? Who holds them? What jail is he going to? Who's going to have responsibility for him? And those are the types of questions that have to be answered before you bring him in, because once you bring him in, he stays here. And then the question is, you know, who has him long term? And, and, I, and I want to bring that up, because that is a cost. That is a significant cost to the United States. And that's, that's why it's really interesting they brought it but, here and not to get them. Well, yeah, but going back, going back to your comment, though, the offset of that is we look at the operation that happened when we went and got bin Laden. Now, I'm not necessarily comparing them as parallel operations. However, it, once we had discovered, according to many sources and some declassified information that's out there, and some of it could be speculation, basically from the point that we had identified him in Abbottabad to the time that we actually went to green light, was about 180 days, six months. We're talking about a year in a country where we had some support and could have gotten clearances a little bit quicker no, than we could have. I, I, I disagree with you. Why? I, I, because it's not as easy as saying we're going to get them. Mm. There's going to be a lot of questions of can you go in country, and then not only can you go in country, how do you get them out of the country? And then when you get them out of the country, how do you fly them to the United States? Because Alan's kind of looking at me and smiling. You don't merely just fly into the United States, especially if you have to go over somebody else's airspace with somebody who's pretty hot target. Alan Moore? No, I, I, I'm simply reflecting on the fact that, that an option which conceivably was – considered was, since we knew who this guy was and where he was, how about a drone strike? They've certainly used a lot of those. Um, you know, the messiness of due process and trials, who needs that? And I totally agree 
though, that if you're going to try to go get them, what you really want to do is make sure that we don't lose, that we don't have civilian casualties and we don't lose any of our guys who are going in. Now, how much clearance you get from the local authority, remember, we're talking about Libya. So I'm guessing there wasn't the same kind of pre-clearance. If this administration can't tell members of Congress a day or two ahead of of uh, the, the, cutting a deal on, on Bo Bergdahl, believe me, they're not going to be talking to some guys who claim to be in charge in Libya and, and, and trying to work everything out with them. Having said that, you really don't want to do harm to our folks or to civilians. Once you've got him, then you get him out into the Mediterranean. You can go all sorts of different directions. It, the, the reason they didn't go to, to, to Guantanamo is the president's trying to close Guantanamo. I don't think he has sent anybody there. I mean, it's not like we've been picking up a bunch of guys, but that would be the last place but, that they would go with a new guy. They but would, let me ask you, let me ask you this question, though. Or New York or somewhere, or a third country, you're certainly not going to go But let, let me ask Bob Hines. Alan brings up a good point, and I, there's another point I want to get back to that Alan brought up, but I want to go back to the point he just brought up. You know, bringing... Bringing this guy here to D.C., to the National Capital Region, arguably could say, hey, you're painting a target on the National Capital Region for any supporters of him to come in and start pulling pins on rider trucks. That is, that's got to be a security concern for the National Capital Region. Why would you put your, your hometown in harm's way like this? Or am I, or am I being too paranoid? I think you're probably being too paranoid. I don't think he's going to be sitting in the White House. I don't think he's going to be in the basement. I understand there. that. I, I don't think no, he's, he's going to go to a state no, dinner. Is, <laughs> I don't course. either. I suspect he's going to be locked up in some military base within 50 miles of the city. That's what I expect. There's, there's a half a dozen places he can pick a place. Carl Tubin. Well, one of the things is, is that the FBI was a part of it. And the FBI happens to be in Washington, D.C. So it's... it's it means it's somewhat logical that they would bring them to Washington, D.C., and the FBI would have some jurisdiction over this. Well, the FBI's got concurrent jurisdiction. I, hold, on, hold on, hold on for a second. FBI? I'm not sure the FBI. This was, the FBI, this was a special op. No, no, the FBI, it is confirmed. The FBI, it is confirmed that the FBI sent a special HRT to uh, assist because, uh, according to sources that we've talked to and our, our assistant producers, uh, Eric uh, Thomas and Yarden Kakon checked on this. Apparently, it, the FBI had concurring jurisdiction on this, and they were the legal lead because the attack happened on U.S. government property as a as as the consulate is designated. So it was a civilian law enforcement operation supported by with the initial breach by U.S. special and it forces. Was also an American diplomat that was killed. Right, that, but again, it was on U.S. soil technically as the assault happened. Go ahead, uh, Dan Lipner. Well, as far as the prosecution goes, we've done this before, and we have this nasty habit in this country uh, forgetting that we've done this before. The hijacker, the September 11th hijacker that missed his flight, we prosecuted him just over the river in Virginia. This went over just fine, and he's still sitting in federal prison and will be sitting there for the rest of his life. So the idea that we can't handle this and we painted a target is, is overstating it more than a little bit. We are probably in the most secure region of the country, if not the world, right here. Okay. Besides, besides, Alan Moore? Besides which, this is not a guy that everyone has heard of. 
This is not bringing Osama bin Laden to America and putting him someplace. This is a guy who's apparently a little bit erratic in his behavior. People aren't that aware of him, a little strange. Now they'll become aware, but he's just, he just doesn't generate the same kind of, of attention, emotion. Does that, not, does that mean that there's no sensitivity, concern? No, we're always concerned every time we bring in uh, somebody like that. But, but I agree that we've, we've done it before. I don't see that that's some huge new thing, putting a target on, on wherever he is. But Bob Hines, you know, what strikes me about this administration is, and, and, and this is just my own observation, this administration has an inane ability of really doing some gutsy you know, gutsy uh, attacks or gutsy operations in getting those masterminds that want to do harm to us. The Bin Laden operation was a gutsy, gutsy call, and I give the administration a lot of credit for this. I would even give the administration a lot of credit for this operation. It is a gutsy tactical call. One can be very good tactically, but miss the boat strategically. Why is the strategy behind all this getting away? We're going to talk about that in greater detail next half hour, but this is another instance where they're missing the strategy, but they're getting the tactics right. Well, I, I, uh, I'm almost going to say, yeah, I'm almost going to say he's complimenting the administration. I'm not a total anti-administration guy, good Lord. Bob? Well, you know, it's it's wonderful that, that you're able to get the guy who is, quote, the leader of the, of the Benghazi attack. That's good. And I'm glad he's going to be caught. I'm glad he's here, and we're going to get him in jail and put him away. But you're right. Outside of getting individual people under control or killing them, they're not doing much good at all in the Middle East. We've had just one watch after another. We've got another one going on now. Okay, but Denise right. Krupp. Some of this is outside of our control. I mean, we, we don't control the Middle East. We're no. not. The, I mean, but and by the way, we're not the only ones that you know created the Middle East. I'd like to go back to England and France. Thank you, post World War One. Uh, so well, the fundamental problem in the Middle East is that the, after World War One, they drew the lines the way the the French, the Italians, the Germans, and the English wanted to draw the lines, and they and they put they put bunches of people together who didn't like each other. Right. And, and and now the rest of the world is living with that problem. And that's that's a reality that... Uh, Even when the Ottomans controlled the region, they didn't like each other. Let's be clear. We can't lay all the blame. No, 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 no. Hold, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Tubin. In 1917, when they started all this in the Balkans, the State Department group, I've told this story before, went to President Wilson and said, you're making a mistake, and it's not going to work. But only because of the fact that there was Tito, who had his hand on it, when Tito was left, the whole thing Look, we can armchair quarterback foreign policy back to 1917 all day. The reality is is that you've got a situation where you know, kudos to the administration for getting the bad guy and bringing him in, and hopefully he has a great gold mine of intelligence that we can get out of him as a result of this. FBI, the FBI is very skillful at interrogation. I'll give him credit for that. Well, let's hope he has something to say. Well, it, well he probably lawyered up immediately. Uh, but anyway, that being said, it, it, it still does not negate the fact, and rightfully so, 
that there are still a lot of questions about could could this have been prevented? Should the loss of Chris Stevens and three other Americans in Benghazi been allowed to happen, or should it have happened? And the administration's strategic response after the attack, was there cover-up? Was there some sort of bad policy decision-making as a result? Bob Hines? I don't think there was a cover-up so much as there was an incompetence. There, was no, there, were no, there were no guards protecting the ambassador. That's the, that's the plain fact. Dan Lipner? I know this has been litigated before, but the ambassador himself was notorious in the region for going out and interacting Correct. with people without ha- being heavily guarded, because being heavily guarded actually keeps you away from the populace. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. However, yeah, however, however, the matter is there still should have been people there to protect him. They were there, and there weren't enough for the coordinated attack that there went down were, on him. Bad there things were, do happen. There, there are bad guys in the world that are people. almost as smart as us there were that actually can. And and that's there, all. Well, there, were also, there were also cuts in budgets for the State Department for, for something like this. But Alan, Alan Moore, is, is, we, we, I asked the question again in a different way. Is this going to is this enough to keep Daryl Isis satisfied? As far as I have to ask the question, kids. I have to ask the question. Is that there, this reminds me one time when I was I was I was in the in, in Istanbul in the Turkish uh, bazaar, and my 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 daughter then no oh, in her early twenties was there, and people were talking and trying to sell us stuff, and. He spoke to uh, to my my then wife, my late wife, who was my my daughter's stepmother, and this guy says to 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 my then wife, "How many camels for your daughter?" And the answer was, "There are not that many camels." You want to satisfy Daryl Issa? You cannot satisfy. There are not enough camels to satisfy Daralisa. Having said that, hopefully we will get some interesting information from this guy. Maybe we'll identify some other guys. I think we've got a pretty good handle on mistakes that we made along the way. Budget cuts had consequences. We were understaffed. Uh, the ambassador was somebody who should he not was have rogue. been he, there. He, well, he was on rogue. That particular day of all days, although it might have been if he'd been there a week from there from then, they would they would have been after him. The White House did try misdirection after the fact. They were in a panic about it, and they there there's there's significant evidence that they sort of knew what was going on. Not absolutely sure. Wrote up some bad talking points, gave them to Susan Rice, who delivered them well to her everlasting dismay. There were many, many mistakes uh, along the way. Um, And I think we've probably learned here in America about 95% of what we can learn. Now that we've got this guy, we can learn some more about what actually went down on the ground. But there still are not enough camels for journalizing. Carl Tuvin. This is not a perfect White House. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Wow. Carl's making Carl's moves. making wow. 
Carl, the Obama administration apologist, came out and said, what? That's right. This is not a perfect white house. They do something very well, and they're lacking on judgment calls on a lot of other things. Um, and we, we all discuss them. Uh, it's been now out in the public, you know, Hillary and, and Biden and Gates wanted to, uh, <clears throat> wanted to have a different policy when they got rid of uh, Mubarak. Uh, the younger people came up and said, no, 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 we've got to get rid of them all. I mean, you know, they've done some, some not too smart things. But, but this is a good thing. The Bin Laden thing was a good thing. They, 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 Obama kept this country afloat after uh, uh, George Bush's administration. We're still coming out of it, and that's it. But, but wait a minute. But, but Dan Lipner, when we talk about foreign policy, and we haven't even touched on Iraq, which we're going to touch on in the next segment, just on Benghazi and the other Middle Eastern foreign policy elements such as Egypt, Syria, this administration is, we look at as American citizens at the White House as being, look, you've got to be savvy about one key point in order to keep us safe. That's foreign policy. Why can't they get it right? Arguably, they have kept it right. How? Have we put new boots on the ground any place in the world? No, but... We went, to, yeah. we went to Africa. We've gone to several other places. So oh. we, we put we put boots we put on the ground. Significant boots on the ground. Oh wow! Well, <laughs> well, wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Yeah. I, 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 okay, so I have Susan Rice's talking points right now, and I need to background. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Ambassador Rice. So, no. But but Denise but Denise so the, the reality is is that we look to the administration they cannot get their foreign policy right they've missed on just about every situation in the Middle East and that's the one powder keg that we need them to be spot on on yeah okay and earlier you said we shouldn't be going back to 1917 but let's face it this is an area of the world where they go back a millennia they start talking about deaths that happened 500 years ago. And until we understand how that impacts their psyche and how they make decisions, we're not going to be able to this solve This Benghazi wasn't talking about deaths 500 years ago. He's talking about when the infidels. When you start talking about Sunni and Shiites and everything else like that, that's the mindset, Justin. I mean, the Russians tried to do it in Afghanistan. They failed. The British failed. A lot of folks have tried to get into that area and have failed. So we, you know, should we but this is in Afghanistan. Absolutely. No, but this entire region, Iraq, Iran, Syria, the whole area is a mess. And we have to actually figure out, working with our allies, how to solve it. Or, or arguably we don't have to solve it. We can get the hell out. The, the one thing that is... Are you calling for isolationism? Not isolationism. But the whole region has suggested exactly one thing. And almost universally, no matter which ethnic group you're talking about, their biggest complaint is that we're there. That much like anyone else, if you have a foreign invader, which is how they view much of any one of European descent, since that goes back to the Crusades, mind you, that the big complaint is that we are there. We keep mucking it up with their lives where we don't belong. All right. Well, I'm going to let that be the last word. When we come back, we're going to have special guest, Dr. Alice Crowther, retired Army colonel, former special assistant to NATO's 
Supreme Allied Commander and a political scientist at the RAND Corporation. He's going to be talking with us about the ISIS insurgency in Iraq. When we come back in three minutes, this is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody, mild, medium, strong, heavy, however you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again, I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining us right now is uh, Dr. Alex Crowther, retired Army colonel, spent 30 years in the Army as an infantry officer and a strategist. Uh, he was seconded to the State Department in 2007, where he served as counterterrorism advisor for the U.S. Ambassador to Iraq, Ryan Crocker, during the surge, and was political advisor to the multinational corps in Iraq for the commander of the Corps in 2009 to 2010. He's currently a senior political scientist at RAND and an adjunct professor at the National Security Studies and Strategy Stud- Strategic Studies Institute 
basically it's the Army think tank. Uh, Alex, it's good to have you here. Thanks for coming. Hey, thanks a lot, Justin, for hey, inviting me. Hey, Alex, tell us a little bit. We've been seeing uh, over the past week just the, the monstrosity of the insurgency going on in Iraq. It's basically in a state of civil war, but it, I wouldn't even call it civil war. ISIS is literally occupying what was at one time a somewhat free Iraq. Is this surprising to you that this comes up this this way this time? Well, uh, this is a, an example of uh, the Iraqi Prime Minister Maliki uh, reaping what he sowed. Uh, he essentially uh, disenfranchised the Sunnis, and the Sunnis are fighting back, and ISIS is taking advantage of this. And you'll notice the terrain that they're liberating is all Sunni territory. They're not taking any of the Kurdish area or the Shia area. So let's let's go back and talk a little bit about ISIS. ISIS is the Islamic Syrian Iraqi state. Uh, it is an insurgency group. Has this group been around for a while? And what's the background on ISIS? Sure, they were uh, the uh, they were in Iraq. Uh, Al Baghdadi, their head, uh, actually, uh, the U.S. had him in detention for several years, and then uh, he was released. Uh, they used to be the Islamic State of Iraq. Uh, then they expanded, and now they're called uh, the Islamic State uh, of Syria and Lebanon. In Iraq. Uh, the, S, the S is Sham, uh, which means, it's an Arabic word that means kind of like Greater Levant to us. So they're operating in Syria and uh, Iraq, and they were affiliated with Al-Qaeda, but Al-Qaeda kicked them out. Uh, when... when and has ISIS been on the American radar since back when you were in Iraq? Is this has this been a concern of ours that this insurgency might happen? Well, uh, we uh, put paid to the the Sunni insurgency uh, starting in late 2006, and the surge finished that off. Uh, essentially, the Sunnis were sick of the Al Qaeda guys, so they teamed up with us and uh, purged. Al-Qaeda from Sunni Iraq, and as long as we were there as a neutral player, uh, everything was fine. They were kept out by the local Sunnis. Once we left uh, and Maliki started suppressing the Sunnis, uh, that opened everything up. It became a fertile ground again for ISIS to come back. Bob Hines. Alan, who is financing these companies, these uh, guys? It sounds to me like some of our friends in the in the Arab world are doing it. Well, once they took Mosul, they're auto financing because they got four hundred and twenty-six million dollars <laughs> out of the uh, state of Iraq facilities yeah. there. Uh, but, but I mean, in, in their structure, I mean, somebody's uh, got to be paying. But before that, uh, their funding came from a variety of actors who fund Sunni fundamentalist groups. Now, who would that <laughs> be? Would that not be the Saudis? Maybe. <laughs> Your silence that's, is deafening, Alex. That's a great question. Well, let, let, let's go back and... See, that's what I'm wondering. It seems uh, to me that one of our best friends in the, in the place over there is just leading the trouble. But let... Alex, let's let's go back and look at ISIS and their current and their current uh, their current insurgency. Uh, last week, they took the second largest city in Iraq, Mosul. Uh, as a result of that, you'd mentioned previously they gotten 425 million dollars in liquid cash available to them, which means that they were able to get at ready access more weapons, buy more support, and pretty much buy a media operation that would make most second world countries jealous. 
their use of social propaganda and social media has been noted throughout traditional media sources. They've taken videos, posted them online of of uh, captives that they've taken, hostages that they've tortured, in some instances even killed. Uh, is this their plan to gain more support in Iraq and the, and the northeastern part of Syria to get more people on board and create that Islamic state that they're searching for? Let me start by saying uh, everything that I say here is my personal opinion and does not reflect the policies of the Department of Defense, the National Defense University, or uh, RAND. Right, right. right. Uh, but um, what you're seeing now is a manifestation of what is sometimes called hybrid warfare. Uh, this is a, a term made popular by my colleague Frank Hoffman over at the National Defense University, and it's where you combine and Hezbollah is an excellent example of this, a political party, uh, a militia, uh, a social group and uh, heavy-duty communications capability together so that you can operate across the spectrum. And so this is what groups have learned to do, and so this is a manifestation of this. They are no different than Hezbollah in doing that. Denise Krapp. You mentioned a few minutes ago that they were not trying to go into the Kurdish parts of the country. What type of deal do you think they've struck with the Kurds, not only in Syria, Iraq, and Turkey, but in other places? To- to stay out and to let them expand into those areas so that they can possibly create their own country. Uh, I don't think there's a deal that's been cut between the Kurds and ISIS. ISIS uh, is not an anti-Kurdish group. Uh, They're targeting the government of Iraq, but the uh, Kurdish regional government uh, has been, in effect, uh, independent for quite a while. But what the Kurds have done and they're very canny political players. Uh, once the Iraqi security forces pulled back, the Kurds came forward. There's been a long-standing uh, disagreement between the government of Iraq and the government and the Kurds on who actually owned what. So there was a physical possession thing, um, and now what's happened is the Kurds have taken advantage of the absence of the Iraqi state and taken what they see as historically theirs. Alex, does it surprise you, number one, that the Iraqi military forces have put up such a lackluster resistance to ISIS? Uh, No, because there are no Sunnis or Kurds or Shia who would die for Mosul. Is that going to be the case as they advance further south into Anbar province, and now, as of an hour and a half ago, CNN's reporting that ISIS forces are inside 40 miles of Baghdad. Is that going to be the case the closer they get to Baghdad? Baghdad is on the uh, fault line between the Shia and the Sunni communities, and so they're going to be able to tuck right up against Baghdad to the west and the north, which is Sunni territory. They're going to continue to do well as long as they limit their operations to Shia ter- uh, to Sunni territory. Does this put uh, Maliki's presidency in question? Could he be a fallout of this? Is he going to survive as president of Iraq? Uh, Maliki uh, has just been reelected as the prime minister of Iraq, and, but he is essentially one of the main causes of this whole thing. And so we could only hope that somehow he is ejected from office because that's the only way Iraq is going to survive as a unitary state. Does this coincide with the removal of American forces from Iraq? Is this a direct result? Um, Well, you can't prove a counterfactual. You can't prove 
that if the United States had stayed, then everything would have been under control. However, in the past, where we have stayed, we have enjoyed success. Uh, no, nobody expected Japan or Korea or Germany to bounce back like they have. Um, and essentially, when we walked out, we sent messages. Uh, we didn't transmit messages, but messages were received by a bunch of different groups. The government of Iraq received the message that they had a free hand to do whatever they wanted to do, and the Sunnis got the message that we were abandoning them, and other actors outside got the message that we were quitting. Denise Crap. Here's my question for you then. You, mentioned, you didn't mention, but it has been mentioned, Saudi Arabia. Who in Saudi Arabia? Because there seems to be a, an interesting power struggle going on in Saudi Arabia right now. The, the current head is elderly. The next one is elderly. The ones after that are elderly. So after we get past the, those that may be approaching 90, who's pulling the strings here in Saudi Arabia? And what do we do to make sure they stop pulling them? Well, the, the problem in Saudi Arabia goes back to how Ibn Saud conquered Saudi Arabia, because he only owned a chunk of central Saudi Arabia, and he took over Mecca and Medina and all that, right. uh, which people in those areas aren't really that fond of the Ibn Saud family. Uh, so they made a deal with the Wahhabists, who are uh, fundamentalist uh, Islamists, and uh, the deal was, we'll support Wahhabist operations uh, in exchange for the Wahhabis uh, supporting Ibn Saud and his clan in, as the guardians of Islam. So that has involved funding uh, mosques and uh, educational facilities around the world, and you'll see them in uh, places like Pakistan. Now, Alex, when we, when we talk about what is, what is happening right now as far as the U.S. response, within the past 48 hours, uh, the, the White House announced that they were sending in the J George H.W. Bush Aircraft Carrier Group uh, to provide air and strategic support. Uh, within the past 24 hours, they, they announced that they're putting 250 Marines at the embassy in Baghdad. Is that going to be enough to offset possibly Baghdad falling or even us abandoning the embassy in, in Baghdad and pulling out completely from Iraq? Well, Baghdad's not going to fall because ISIS doesn't have the capability to uh, attack Baghdad. Everybody who equates this to Vietnam, it, it's apples and, and Cadillacs because the North Vietnamese attacked South Vietnam with 10 conventional divisions led by armor, so they physically conquered it. ISIS doesn't have anything like that, uh, so they're not going to take Baghdad. Second of all, all, you can have all the air in the world, which we do have, but until you can identify targets on the ground, it doesn't do you any good. We're not going to just randomly bomb people in northern Iraq. Go ahead, Dan Lipner. Well, Alex, you, you mentioned Iraq surviving as a single state, uh, but is it possible that that is not really Iraq's future, that Vice President Biden's approach that Iraq is existing as a three-state solution is actually what the future holds for Iraq? Um, if you were to extrapolate from the situation on the ground today, that's what you would get is a Sunni state, a Shia state, and a Kurdish state. Is, is, is that going to be a reality that we're going to see in the next decade? Uh, I think uh, there's a very good chance that that is going to be the de facto reality within a couple of months. Is, uh, is that, but, does but that pose a more clear and present danger to American national security if that happens? No. No, why? Uh, because uh, at that point, 
Uh, Maliki is the head of a Shia rump state who's exporting oil. Uh, the Kurds are exporting their oil. The Kurds have what they want. The Sunnis have what they want, which is to get the Shia off their backs. And the Shia have what they want, which is a Shia-dominated state. Really? Now, in the, in, the past, in the past 24 hours, CNN had reported that there might be discussions going on between Tehran and Washington. This is, ironically, ISIS, along with being an organization that al-Qaeda says is way too wacky for us to be even associated with, they pushed off on ISIS. But you've also got common enemies in ISIS with the U.S., Iran, and the current regime in Syria. So that puts two of our enemies against our enemy. Is this a situation where the enemy of our enemy is our friend? Uh, that's a distinct possibility. Uh, the Iranians, uh, of course, their, their strategic goals are to defang Sunni transnational organizations and to maintain a Syrian state. But they could get a bonus out of this, which would be rapprochement with the United States. Does it make political sense? for the U.S. to engage with Iran, particularly with the past history that we've had, in particular, the past five years in the nuclear question? Well, you know, dealing with Iran is a lot, uh, a lot like uh, alcohol. Remember, we tried to prohibit the use of alcohol and it didn't work? Well, you can try to prohibit Iran, but you can't make them go away. You have to deal with them. They're out there. And when we turn people into pariah states like North Korea, it doesn't work. So somehow they need to be brought back into the family of nations. But this also calls into question the current administration policy against the Assad administration in Syria. They, we've got an, an enemy of our enemy in Assad in Syria. Is this something where we just continue to back out of Syria and let Syria fall as it may? There is no solution in Syria. And, and, and that's it. We just have to let Syria just fall as Syria goes. We can, we can have all the goals that we want in Syria, but we can't uh, impose any reality in Syria. And no one is in a position right now to impose their reality on Syria. Right now, my personal opinion is that the situation in Syria is that Assad, backed by Hezbollah fighters on the ground and the Iraq, uh, I mean, sorry, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, has the upper hand. Is, is, is the current situation in Iraq going to allow for any sort of U.S. involvement boots on the ground other than what we've already committed? Is this going to be a, another drone situation, or do we have to go back on the resolution and the presidential directive of both Bush and Obama, we're not putting boots on the ground again? Well, the... Uh it took us 160,000 soldiers and a year and a half to get everything under control in the surge, and we're certainly not going to do that again. Um, so anything less than that isn't really going to get everything under control. Is, is there a lot? Does the U.S. foreign and military policy currently have a strategy? Even though they're still working out some of the finite details, is there a strategy where this could come? as a favorable outcome to the U.S.? Okay. Uh, during the Benghazi discussion, somebody said, we don't have a strategy? Yeah. Okay. We don't have a strategy. <laughs> is, is that something common that we're – I mean, because this seems to be a common figure that we're seeing out of this administration. There, I think that we haven't had a strategy since the end of the Cold War. 
including Iraq, including Syria, including including post strategy. including post nine eleven. There's no strategy post nine eleven. What was the, it was uh, uh, attack Afghanistan because we need to get to Osama bin Laden, and then Iraq was uh, kind of a sideline that that grew and overshadowed Afghanistan. Alan Moore, question for uh, yeah, Alex. Question about about your sense of, of of Maliki going forward. So if we end up with a de facto tri-state operation with with very murky borders between the three, um, but sort of no man's land, et cetera. What does Maliki do in your mind? Is is he satisfied with being the head of a rump modified, shrunken? Shiite state, or is there a chance that he might try to move the way we've encouraged him to, to make more accommodation to Sunnis and Kurds? It, it, or is it, A, is that in his nature to be willing to consider it? And two, is it still possible, or has that train left the station? Uh, as far as Maliki is concerned, uh, Baathists are bad. All Sunnis are Baathists. Therefore, all Sunnis are bad. Uh, and there is no way he's going to put his arms around them. During our presence in Iraq, we were able to modify his behavior slightly. For instance, when we transferred responsibility for the Sunni militias from us over to the government of Iraq, Maliki refused to pay them. And we leaned on him, and eventually he paid them. When we left, he stopped paying them, and now there's no one to lean on him to do that. He has been systematically disenfranchising the Sunnis and sidelining the Kurds, and so it's not within his nature to embrace the Kurdish and Sunni communities. Do you think that Maliki now regrets not signing any sort of treaty allowing for U.S. troops to remain in Iraq? The only reason Maliki would regret not having U.S. troops around is that... Uh, if ISIS were to have an insurgency that would take most of northern Iraq? I don't think he cares about western Iraq. Uh, <laughs> there's no resources out there, and there are Sunnis. He hates all the Sunnis. So I think he'd be happy to cut Anbar off and let it just drift. Would he want to cut off the north? Uh, no, because there's oil up there. Yeah. Yeah. Dan Lipner, question for Alex Crowley. Yeah, I actually wanted to go back to the, the no strategy comment. Um, because I would actually, and I know Alan might have heartburn, that was just shock of my comment here, um, that George Herbert Walker Bush, the elder Bush, uh, with his war in Iraq, but deliberately stopping warfare and the arguments that came out after that, that you needed a strong Iraq to maintain a balance in the region with the New World Order that was deliberately undone by the George Bush the Younger, um, that that strategy suggesting that maintaining that system that had been placed since World War II, while less than ideal, may have actually been the only balance available that kept the entire region from exploding. I mean, how, wouldn't that strategy suggest that maybe there was a strategy, but the strategy would have had to continue with an ugly solution, but the only ugly solution that was available? Um, I like the way the elder Bush handled everything. And... Uh, not just his decision not to go to Baghdad, but uh, holding off the invasion of Iraq until he got a UN Security Council resolution. And that's where I think the second Bush administration made a really major error, is they were in such a hurry that they didn't take the time to get a special UN Security Council resolution allowing 
uh, Gulf Wars 03. And, uh, and that kind of delegitimized the whole thing from the very beginning. As far as uh, a strategy for the Middle East, uh, we don't have a strategy for the Middle East. I don't think we've had one since the elder Bush, since the end of the Cold War. Um, it's one thing to say, hey, democracy is good, free trade is good. It's another thing to say, we're going to democratize this country. You've got to have an end state in mind other than they're democratic and don't threaten their neighbors, which is kind of all there was. So there, there's been no end state defined. Look at Egypt. There's no end state for that. There's been no definition of end states anywhere in the Middle East since the end of the Cold War. Is, is, is the Middle East, in your opinion, and, and obviously somebody who's been actively engaged in the strategy, U.S. strategy, what it is in Iraq and in the Middle East, Alex, is the Middle East too far gone? Do we just wipe our hands of it and say, let the cards fall where they may, totally? Well, you can't do that, because in the globalized world, things that happen in Afghanistan impact on New York, uh, in the case of 9-11, or the Pentagon, where I was for 9-11. Uh, so uh, you can't just write the area off, but there are more options uh, than just boots on the ground. For instance, uh, when the Arab Spring came along, uh, when Egypt happened, uh, there were only two organized groups in the country, the government and the Muslim Brotherhood. And if you made the government give up power, then obviously the Muslim Brotherhood was going to win the election. So why not take every democracy-promoting person here in town, send them to Egypt, and say, you can come back when everybody else is organized into political parties. But we didn't do that. But, but it, we're not shaping anything. But at what, at what point, I mean, we're going to obviously look at 9-11 as a point where going back to the, the earlier statement of the Bush 41 policy of, you know, we didn't go into Baghdad after Desert Storm. We had Saddam Hussein contained in Iraq. We didn't let uh, Assad go outside of Syria. We pretty much had him contained as much as he would like to try and get involved in places like Lebanon uh, and, 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 and the Gaza. When we look at uh, that current state of everybody's contained, everybody's, there's some sort of stability. We may not like it, but it's the lesser of all evils. Can we get back to a lesser of all evils in the future? Is there oh, an end no, game? The genie's out of the bottle now. It, We're never going back to that. It, really? Really. When uh, all in all, does ISIS pose a terroristic threat to the United States? No. Why? Uh, they're kind of busy right now. But, it, but there, are, there, are, there are those that claim that because of the influence that they're having in the northeastern part of Syria, there are those that claim because of their aggressive nature in the insurgency in Iraq and through propaganda that they've put out, I can tell you right now that we had uh, we tweeted on Friday evening that we were going to talk about this subject. When we tweeted this within 10 minutes, a, an alleged member of the ISIS, ISIS propaganda corps put out a tweet directed at us saying this is an open letter to President Obama basically stating get out or else we're going to come after you. It seems that ISIS, your comment that they don't pose a clear and present danger to us is counter to some here in Washington that say that yes, they could be the new Al-Qaeda. It's a long walk from uh, Fallujah to Washington, D.C. Congressman Al. Uh, you've indicated, and, and I want to verify that I've got this correct before I ask the question, that 
essentially since Bush won, <clears throat> we haven't had a policy uh, in the Mideast. No, we've had plenty of policies. We just haven't had a strategy. Okay. Wonderful distinction. I love that. I, I'm going to use that sometime. <laughs> <laughs> the question, now that goes through the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, and this administration. Yes. Now, is it possible to have uh, uh, a strategy? strategy? Yes, but it would be very difficult to put one together. Uh, the problem is that the American political system does not allow for long-range thinking. Long-range thinking in Washington, D.C. is the next House election. Yes. So the, the terminal horizon for all planning is a maximum of two years. Well, strategies require planning 20 or 50 years into the future, unless you're the Chinese, in which case it's 100 years in the future. Uh, but our political system does not reward people who do that. If you were a president and uh, you, you were elected, you became the president, and then you expended a bunch of effort to put together a 100-year strategy, you would not gain anything positive. You wouldn't get one vote out of it. Uh, you wouldn't get reelected out of it, uh, and everybody would wonder what you were doing. Yeah. Well, sometimes you have to do some things that don't necessarily – you don't want to do things that will lose you votes, but you sometimes can do things that don't particularly gain you votes. Sure. Uh, and uh, what you're saying is that is that uh, the presidents since George Bush the first – uh, have basically failed to take care of this problem. I, I'm wondering if they, uh, why is that? Because they're afraid of not getting reelected? Is it because they think it's not worth it? Well, the, the specific process where the national security strategy is developed uh, is a lowest common denominator uh, approach where somebody writes a draft and then they send it around Washington, D.C., and everybody has a chance to input into it. So it becomes an aspirational document. Uh, democracy is good. Free trade is good. And that's all correct. Everything that's in the national security strategy are all good ideas for the future. Uh, but it doesn't say anything about uh, how you would democratize or how you would expand free trade. What's the, what's the State Department doing over there? It's not their job. Whose job is it now? The National Security Council. It, it, it strikes me, and, and again, your opinion is yours, but we, we speculate around the table that the National Security Council, as it stands, with you don't have a lot of senior military or senior intelligence or senior uh, strategic minds in the National Security Council. Has Obama heard his chances of coming up with a solution in the Middle East by, in fact, not having the right people advising him on national security issues? <laughs> You're not going to answer? That was for Alex. No, please, please. Sure. Um, actually, uh, in the early days, hiring people like uh, retired General Jim Jones to be the National Security Advisor was a great idea, but uh, it appears as though uh, the there isn't a whole lot of dialogue going on. There's a lot of 
this is our policy and therefore it's good going on. So people like Jones have kind of left and the people that are remaining standing have a certain... Like Susan Rice. A certain ideological approach that supports the president. Denise Crabb. Well, let, let, let's play inside baseball. The majority of folks the national security staff aren't permanent staffers. They're detailees from different agencies there for a year because the national security staff can't afford to pay for its own folks. And yes. I only say this after how you deal after dealing with those folks. I actually got kicked out of the White House um, for a year. <laughs> for a year, it, it was great. I, I refused to um, to do what a national security staffer wanted me to do, and it, it was dealing with piracy in Somalia. And he wanted me to keep my mouth shut. And I said, No, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. I'm advocating for what I need to do. So they made a phone call over to the Secretary of Transportation, and he then told the administrator and said, She can't go to meetings anymore. She's not welcome. Like, wow, so when you speak up, you get told you can't go to the White House. Bowie on you. Well, that seems to be a running seems to be a running theme in that White House. Uh and well, the last White House, let's be clear on okay. that. <laughs> and by the way, he's right, because the last White House also had detailees. That's what happened when we started when we stood up the Department of Homeland Security. Well, there was nobody there. They sent detailees. Well, with, with that, I'm gonna, we've got to go to break. We're at the top of the hour. I want to thank Dr. Alex Krauser from Rand Corporation and the Army Think Tank for joining us. Alex, as always, we appreciate your insight. Thank great, you, great segment. And um, for making some of the most pregnant pauses. <laughs> <laughs> with that, when we come back, we're going to talk inside Beltway Baseball. We're going to talk about, uh, believe it or not, the Republicans are eating their own, and they really took a big chunk last week in Eric Cantor. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. By the way, it's happy hour. It's time for us to order our bourbon, order our Al's Martini, and cut open our cigars. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches blended, single malts, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or, heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. One more once. I'm like, and we're back here live in Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington D.C. Uh, we're going to change. We're going to change as everybody regathers for our. The, the, the fact that we're live, guys, don't worry about that. That's all right. We're good. We're good, guys. Uh, we're going to change strategy and talk something a little bit more happy, or if you're a Republican, a little bit more disturbing. So, in case you were living under a rock for the past week. Last Tuesday night, the Republican Party continued to sh- demonstrate its ability to eat its own, yet it eat its own at the highest levels of power. Last week, in a primary for the Virginia 7th Congressional District, Eric Cantor, the majority leader in the House of Representatives, was defeated by as much as 12 to 13 points and it was just an absolute shock to everybody inside the Beltway. Really? D- oh, oh, stop. Woo-hoo. Stop. <laughs> Go tell Debbie Wasserman Schultz that little rhetoric. I don't want to hear your crap. <laughs> so here's the question for you. Very civil. Very civil. Was that civil? <laughs> First of all, Congressman Al, yes. you're talking about the number two most powerful human being in the House of Representatives. Yeah. Does it shock you? That the division in the Republican Party would allow itself to take out its majority leader in the House in a way that was definitive? Well, I found it hard to believe that Washington State would get rid of the Speaker of the House. Uh, Good point. Uh, but that not was, in the primary. But, that, but, that was <laughs> not but that's not our primary. Agreed. It was not in the primary. But it's still, it, it was a shocking thing. This is even more shocking because it was in the primary. It was... In, uh, in, in the early stages, and it was it was done entirely by Republicans. Now, having said that, I I think that some was Eric Cantor's fault. He he was always been a bit arrogant, and uh, he obviously had was taking his uh, district for granted. Uh, too much, uh, and that's easy to do when you start developing large responsibilities on the hill. 
I, I felt myself slipping into that in the last few years that I was in Congress because uh, this such and such would be going on at home, and I'd say, i got to stay here because I've got such and such I'm doing here, uh, <laughs> as you pick up responsibilities. So that, that's one thing. The other thing is that the Democrats have gone through something similar to what the Republicans are going through back during the Vietnam War and, uh, and during uh, various environmental things. But it never got this bad. Uh, they never really got themselves organized enough to actually uh, get enough elected people to cause a problem. Uh, so nobody was ready for it. I'll tell you this, uh, it's not only the Republican Party that has got a real problem. I think the Democrats do too. I think once this happens, other people get the idea of trying to do the same thing. And uh, you may see a dysfunctional Congress become less functional than ever. Bob Hines, I know that when I was sitting here last Tuesday night after the show, uh, I was pretty much just waiting for the political tw the Politico tweet saying, oh, Eric Cantor's won by, according to his pollster, he was up 35 points, and this wasn't going to be news. When my phone started literally blowing up saying, hey, Cantor's out, as shocked as I was, does it surprise you necessarily that Eric Cantor lost? Yes, it does. Why? It surprises me because I cannot imagine that someone in that position is so out of touch, and his campaign people and his people back home are so out of touch with what's going on in his district that he doesn't know what's happening right in front of him. That's amazing. Let them eat steak. That's all I have to say. <laughs> okay. I'm going to get back to you on that one. Carl Tuvin. There are majority leaders have responsibilities, as we all know. <clears throat> One of them is to raise money for candidates, and that's how they keep their caucus together. He he was out town, as far as Virginia was concerned, out of the district, raising money. He was going to Montauk. He was going to the Hamptons, traveled over the country, uh, <clears throat> was in New York with bankers, investment bankers. Matter of fact, one of his children are at Golden Sachs, and I hear another one is going to be there soon. So he was doing all this. He was wearing these uh, very expensive suits. He had a big entourage around him. Tom Foley, as I remember it, when he was, when he was speaker, Tom Foley had one person with him, maybe two, but at least one. Uh, he had an entourage of people with him, and I think when you know when when you you have a district like he had, he carried all the Jewish sections of his district, but he didn't carry the other parts of the district where there was a poorer group of people. Dan Lipner. Well, it's worth noting there there have been a bunch of theories as far as why Cantor lost, and there are three theories that are out there at the moment. Uh, one of which was the operation. Chaos brought to us by Cooter, uh, a.k.a. Ben Jones, former congressman, um, that suggested the Democrats would cross over in the open primary to vote for the other guy. The 
second, the second item, which is immigration reform, that Cantor was somehow too moderate on uh, wanting to throw, not wanting to throw the children of illegal immigrants out of the country because they were here through no fault of their own. And the last one was I just uh, heard today was Carl Rove actually mentioning this has to do with more of the foxification of the news that in contra- in contrast to what Tip O'Neill used to say that all politics is local that because Fox News and national media have taken the taken such an omnipresence as it has that local that the all politics is local no longer matters that it is actually everything is national so bringing home the bacon or making sure your constituents get what they need doesn't actually play anymore Alan Moore yeah one thing i hope we can do after as we as we we dig into these bones and try to figure out the multiple factors because it's clear that there were numerous factors not one big thing when you lose by 11 and 12 points and supposedly <laughs> you're wasting money on a pollster who tells you a few weeks earlier that you're up by 34 points um, that that uh, maybe we can put a pause button on the notion that it's all about money that that money is the only thing that talks you can buy members of congress it's who raises the most money Cantor is a money raising machine as 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 carl mentioned going all over the country <laughs> instead of going home he spent on the order of five million dollars his opponent spent around a hundred thousand yeah 190 and, and so i'm not saying money doesn't matter at all but this notion that big money controls um, and and that that it swamps the little guy. There's a lot of stuff going on, but I think when you break it all down, Eric Cantor's absence from his district and paying close attention and and, and allowing resentment at home to build up, looking like somebody different, not showing up, open him to the Laura Ingrams and Ann Coulters of the world who are on the and, and some radio personalities who take shots. There may have been some crossover voting. Um, it was it was obviously numerous things and everybody missed it. Dan Lipner. No, it's actually a little bit bigger than that. It has to, it more goes into American democracy as a whole. That when you're talking about low turnout elections, which to be clear, this was this was a historically low turnout election actually for the district. So you have to start looking at who shows up and Americans as a whole, we don't get, we talk about participatory democracy as much as anyone else, but we really don't engage that much. We engage about once a year, maybe, and that's at best, really once every two years after Labor Day. Prior to that, it's really left to the fringe and it's the fringe on either the left or the right. So having an election determined by the, by the people who are super motivated, in which case it would be the Tea Party folks, which I know Alan doesn't acknowledge they exist, but the Tea Party folks that turned out, and they turned out on issues that were, sub, as far as what, why they turned out, was somewhat fictitious. And when you look at that as far as democracy as a whole, yeah, you are right. The Laura Ingrams and the talk radio circuit are what took out cancer, but their folks, the people who listen to radio, those aren't most of America. Bob Hines. Bottom line is still, to my mind, pretty simple. 
why doesn't Eric Cantor know what's going on in his own district? <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. Two years ago, he won relatively easily. No surprise, he's the majority leader. Two years later, he's, he's just, he's beaten by, by what, 56 to 44? I mean, he's, 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 he's humiliated in that sense. Now, if his, if his own staffing, in his own polling, if, what, is, what are they doing? But Bob, they got to be talking to the people out there, and they, a, a lot of people must have been saying something that he wasn't listening to. But Bob to. Hines, this goes to a bigger problem, I think, in, in, inside the GOP, that, that the primary has become a political statement, not so much a elect who's electable situation. It, the GOP continues to eat its own. That, to me, goes back to a definitive lack of serious, serious leadership inside the party, and by the party I mean the RNC. This should have been something that should have been on the radar with the RNCC. This is something that should have been on the radar, not, not withholding, the lack of understanding of the Cantor camp in their own district, I'll give you that. But this goes back to the issue of we continue to eat our own. And as a party, we cannot continue to primary, let alone our leadership, if we want to maintain a serious leadership base inside the House of Representatives. Am I wrong in that, Congressman? No, I, excuse me. Swallowing my martini. Uh, no, no, I don't think you're wrong about that. It seems to you know, I, I kept thinking of this, this afternoon all about Scoop Jackson, Senator Henry M. Jackson from Washington State. Most people, he hasn't been gone that long, but most people don't remember him at all. But he was, he was the fourth-ranking senator in the United States, and uh, he made frequent... Uh, news, and uh, everybody in Washington State knew he was a national senator, very well respected on foreign policy and and uh, defense policy and all of this kind of stuff. He he would come home constantly. He was always at home. Uh, he and he also would make phone calls every night to certain people that he knew well, who knew, who had their fingers in the politics locally, and he would sample all of these people, and he, uh, he, he, he managed to, uh, I don't think he, I think he won his last election by 82% in a legitimate two-party state. Uh, how he had the energy to do all of that, I don't know, but it worked, and it's clearly not what uh, Cantor was doing. Go ahead, Dan Lipner. Well, it's not just Cantor, mind you. If you look down south in Mississippi, the GOP might be throwing away a safe Senate seat. I mean, it's a, let's be clear, Mississippi is a deep red state. However, if Cochran loses the, his runoff, right. that very well puts the seat in play. So, and this has been a reoccurring theme, that the right has thrown things overboard, again, through this uber right-wing move. And what you, what you do with that, especially since the party establishment, which is who is still running the leadership of the, the, uh, the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee, the Senate Campaign Committee, 
and the RNC. Those folks are disconnected from the Tea Party folks that are the folks who really turn out, they are really motivated, and they hate everything that is going on in D.C., whether it's the establishment Republicans or the Democrats. They truly despise it. Alan Moore. Yeah, the, um, you, you keep using the phrase of eating their own, and I, I think the Cantor business is, is a little bit different. And, and people say, wow, another big victory for the Tea Party. It's certainly not a defeat for the Tea Party, but this was not a classic Tea Party enterprise. Although Cantor is very much part of the establishment, he wasn't somebody perceived as, if you will, a moderate or so much a deal maker. He would drive the Democrats crazy because because he was so conservative. That's why this one is so strange. It was so invisible, and it was not up to the party to 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 do something. Here's a guy with unlimited funds who lives in Washington two hours away by car from his district. He had stopped paying attention. He was vulnerable to absolutely a very small election with people motivated by whatever set of reasons. Now, some of them who didn't like his politics, some of them who didn't like his absence, some of them perhaps who were persuaded, who crossed over from the from the Democratic side. I, I don't the, the the Mississippi case is a more classic sort of Tea Party uprising to toss out an old line, very powerful guy. I think the I think the Cantor case is 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 kind of this anomaly. Alan, let me jump in though real quick because when we look at when we look at Brat, the guy who beat Eric Cantor in Seventh yeah. Congressional District, Virginia. Brent is a professor at Randolph-Macon College, has never had any political experience behind him at all, won on a tab of about 195000 and change. Is Brent electable in Virginia 7? It seems like we just turned over a solid Republican seat back to the Democrats. I don't, I don't know that at all. And, and it's not like Cantor, given the problems he had at home, was a shoe-in to win against the Democrat. If that... If that if that race truly is, you know, uh, in in play, but but I don't is know. Is Brad electable? He's sure he's electable. He just beat Cantor. He's yeah. sort of this, <laughs> he's sort of this hot shot hero. Apparently, apparently the, the 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 kids who take his class say, "Wow, he's really hot," um, and uh, and he's going to run against another faculty member from uh, from the same college. It's it's a uh, it's a it's a curious one. Um, bizarre. I mean, it's a, it's a bizarre is the word you're looking for. Republican district, and he's now going to get a lot of financial support, um, and uh, and we'll see what happens. But I, I wouldn't I wouldn't assume that he's going to lose. That's why I don't think this is you know it's a Republican district eating eating themselves. It's it's like well if it's, it's one thing if if you if you create a situation you open the door for a Democrat. It's a very different situation when one Republican knocks off another and then gets elected in his own right. Carl Tuvin. Surprised to see that well, happen. First of all, there were signs that this was coming. Uh, there was not according to Eric Cantor's pollster. There was a there was an election for a leader in, in that congressional district, a Republican leader. Cantor's person lost. That's number one. Number two, um, he claimed that he was in town every week. And um, according to some friends of mine who knows his mother, his mother said he hasn't been here in months. 
Well, so it was kind of the, you know, it's... The, well, that feeds into the fact that he was just totally detached right, from exactly, his district. Exactly. And the staff, you know, in order to come back to Congress, you've got to do good staff work on the ground. And and you've got to be there to talk to the people. I mean, Al knows this. We all know this. And Go, this didn't happen. Alan Moore. I, I was reminded when Al was talking about Scoop Jackson not only traveling back, and that's across the country to, to Washington State, but I'm remembering Strom Thurmond who served up until age 100 in, in, the, in the Senate. And what Strom would do every Friday was sit, would be to sit for hours on the phone from his office in Washington calling the bribes who were in the newspapers throughout the state to congratulate them on their wedding. And he would call the valedictorians and school speakers at graduation time, even though, and he would go down there a lot, but you didn't have to be physically present if you were willing to put in hour after hour after hour, connecting, 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 and then an enormous volume of letters from him, letters of congratulation all over the state. All well, that brings up a good point. You know, in today's social media and 24-hour news cycle, I want to go to the the graybeards at the table, Bob and Al, when, oh, let's come on. Oh, like I'm telling you something you don't already know. Leave us young guys alone. Yeah, exactly. Right Bob, Bob I'm going to ask you and I'm going to ask Al the same question. In today's social media world, 24-hour news cycle, is old school politics, the old school political abilities lost to members? They want to know what social media is. Yeah. <laughs> that Twitter thing I talk about. It has changed. You need to talk to ISIS. It has changed, and it will continue to change. It doesn't mean that the old guys can't still do it, if they can change and if they will do it. Now, obviously, Cantor was not, was his, he and his team were not paying attention to what was going on under their own backyard. They missed it. Totally missed it. But you... Is this a wake-up sign for Thad Cochran? Sure it is. Sure it is. <laughs> he got he yeah. got that a while back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he's he's his next Tuesday. His next next Tuesday, I think. And uh, he's probably not gonna make it. He's, wow. He, but Cochran just raised eight hundred thousand dollars Apparently that doesn't mean squat in the district though, well, or the it, state. It might not mean squat, but it's certainly gonna put him on T V. Well I tell you, you know, you know, Haley Barber and you know, who is a who is beloved in Mississippi. Is, is doing everything he can possibly do. And the last good political boss we had. Yeah. He's uh, doing everything he can possibly do to, 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 to help uh, the senator win because he's a hell of a lot better senator than this. Congressman uh, Al, have we lost the old school way of truly doing politics today? Yes, we have. And I think an awful lot of it goes back to structure. When you start talking uh, reform, <clears throat> You know, in, a, in, in this part of the discussion, everybody's eyes cross, and and the reason they all cross is that you're talking, you get, you're getting into political science. If if Eric Cantor hadn't had a safe district, he probably would have been home more. You see, if uh, if, if if you set if you set it up right, it's going to work better, not perfect. And uh, it wouldn't have kept the Tea Party from developing and all the rest. But I think it would 
help to balance our political activity along more normal lines if we uh, if we could just straighten out redistricting. What you're saying, Alan, is we have to straighten the redistricting system is a, is the broken system that puts you in such a safety feeling that you don't have to work that hard and you, you, you get caught. That's the way it's working out. Yep. And, and I think that, uh, that, that I think that somebody, because it can be done, has got to put together a way of telling the average citizen how much is in it for them to have honest redistricting. Uh, and usually it's a bunch of politicians like us talking about how much it's good for us. <clears throat> Uh, and and that, that won't work. You've got to find a way to, to do it. I, I, I found that you, you could give all the political science arguments you wanted against redistricting, and nobody would listen. Well, I'm going to let that be the last word. Well, okay. But, but if you said they, they the, the proponents of, of uh, redistricting, think you're too damn dumb to make this decision on your own, that, that, gets their attention and they need to start paying attention. And I'm going to let that be the last word. Last word? Okay. Redistricting uh, needs to be done. Okay, I'll let that be the last word. Okay, with that, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a humanitarian crisis that's now coming up on the southern border uh, where thousands of illegal immigrant children are being held in detention centers along the southern border, creating a huge immigration, humanitarian, and political crisis for the administration yet again. This is Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know... Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Backroom, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelley's Backroom, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties.
back here live, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Back Room Pods. It's on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we talk real quickly, and it's something we're going to get into over the next couple of weeks because this is not going anywhere, but there's a situation going on at the southern border I wanted to talk about. Right now in Nogales, Arizona, as well as in Brownsville, Texas, uh, there are more than 1,000 young immigrant children that are now housed in a detention center on the southern border. Uh, they are crossing over from the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. They're crossing over from the southern border in Arizona. And these are children not from where we would think from Mexico, but they're coming from places like El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. And it's just become a truly, truly uh, traumatic situation for these children. Right now, the Department of Homeland Security is running uh, running shot on this uh, in conjunction with uh, Customs and Border Protection, the Border Patrol, as well as uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement. FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, is right now running lead for this situation. The problem is, is that this is creating a situation where you have thousands of migrant children who are coming into this country unsupervised by adults, and they are literally being housed in detention centers that could possibly be not only a health crisis, but a law enforcement crisis, as these detention centers could be uh, a breeding ground for some very nefarious organizations like MS-13, such as the Suertas, etc. Alan Moore, when we look at this crisis right now, which is quickly becoming a bigger crisis, uh, our producers, uh, Eric Thomas, tried reaching out to Customs and Border Protection. When he talked to Customs and Border Protection earlier today, their uh, Assistant Commissioner for Public Affairs, uh, Michael Friel, Michael Friel said that Customs and Border Protection cannot comment at this time on the situation, it seems like nobody's got true control over this. How big of a problem could this be for American immigration policy and a humanitarian crisis, Alan? Boy, I don't know. I mean, it, it, I can understand why they would be hesitant to, to say very much. They're, they're trying to get their hands around exactly what's going on. And we Americans are always looking for a, a simple explanation, whether it's for why can't or lost or why these people are coming across. There's a whole bunch of people, and they're coming across for different reasons. We're right now getting, there's this new big influx, um, which says something about the relative, the strengths of the two economies, I would guess. But there's something like 36,000 people now a month coming across. And about a fourth of them are kids. Many unaccompanied, not all unaccompanied, some come with friends, family, and others. It's especially depending on their age. It used to be that the minors who would come would be age oh, 15, 16 to 18, and they would be minors. Um, now they're like 12 to 15 and 16. And some of these, and some of these minors are, are pregnant. It's, well, it, <laughs> I, I'm sure some are, but, but, but the, 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 the ones who are coming up from Honduras, Guatemala, and Salvador are largely fleeing violence, drug-related violence, and family members are saying, we got to get our kids out of here, especially our young boys, because they're going to be pulled into conflict. And I've seen this, I've 
been in refugee camps in northern Ethiopia where there were all kinds of young boys who parents were sending out of the country because otherwise they were going to be pulled in to one side or the other of armed But conflict. here's the problem. Here's the problem with this, though. They're sending their children to the United States to get away from these organizations like MS-13. Right. They're going into these detention centers, and MS-13 is a breeding ground in this detention maybe, center. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, they're moving them around. There is some supervision. They're... The, they're, they're taxed to the limits, and they're, they're flying plane loads from one city to another, still trying to get some level of, of stability. There's also, in, in addition to this violence in those, those countries we mentioned, there is apparently uh, an understanding, a misunderstanding, shall we say, of what happens when they come up here, because, but because it's more than random uh, that people are saying, no, we've heard that if we can... If we can get our kids in, they'll be able to stay there. Well, part of the problem is, from what we've heard, is that uh, the DACA, the Deferred Deportation Action Policy by the United States, that if you're a child of an undocumented child in the United States in school, in an educational program, you will not be deported as long as you continue your education and become a productive member of society. But I believe, that's, I believe that policy... Of, that policy was that, just reinstated. Right. But that was if you were here before 2007. Correct. And not if you've come in since. But that, that's a nuance. That's but, they don't, being, but the problem is they don't know that. Or missold by the people who uh, help bring these folks across. There's also a lot of people who are up here illegally earning money, sending it back home, so if your father or your uncle or your grandfather is up here and you're from Honduras or El Salvador, there may be money and a place, but it might be up in Illinois somewhere. So you have to get across the border, and then there's a duty on the part of the U.S. government to find out if you really do have relatives here and, and reunite. It's just swamping the system, though. You know what's ironic is, is that last week uh, one of our – one of our assistant producers talked to somebody from the Honduran embassy who was in attendance watching the show. Their ambassador was on the ground at one of these detention centers in Nogales, Arizona, saw what was going on, and his quote was he was quite happy with what he saw. That is contrary to what Congressman, um, Con uh, Democratic Congressman out of South Texas, um, uh, Texas Oh, I'm going to miss his name anyway. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, Hispanic uh, member. It starts with a C. Anyway, uh, this congressman was down in these camps, and he was showing pictures and telling stories of this is just an, in, an inhumane way to have all these kids stacked up, which is shocking to me. The other thing that's shocking to me about this is that the federal government doesn't have the knowledge base to involve the people that they should involve. Give you an example. In Department of Education, there is an Office of Migrant Education. They have migrant education programs that are designed for children in this situation, yet the Department of Homeland Security or the administration hasn't reached out to the Department of Education, the one organization that could probably help fix this, and they're not talking. It is amazing to me that this humanitarian crisis is being promulgated 
by incompetence inside the administration. Does that shock you, Bob? No. It's such a it's such a huge influx so quickly, and it's it's a you know this administration, and I think maybe almost any of the administration have a hard time catching up with it. But it is it is a terrible problem, and they have got to do something quickly. And I don't know what they're I don't know how they're going to do it, and I and I don't know enough about the how the solution can be found. Alan Moore. Yeah, we have overwhelmed our capacity here, and and this is this is this is the kind of thing that that happens typically in conflict or natural disaster from around the world. I mean, we had all this conversation earlier today about about ISIS in Iraq and a half a million people who 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 picked up their whatever they could carry on their back or put in their car if they had one and leave Mosul. You got a half a million people displaced. We've got about six million people displaced. Uh, in and around Syria, I mean, the, the, the world knows how to respond in, in emergency situations, but we don't do it very well here at home. We're not used to it. We're not ready for it. It's, it's interesting that the, an ambassador from Honduras would go down and say, wow, at least they're being, they're, they're being fed. They got a roof over their heads or some level of security and safety. And yeah, they're crowded because we don't have the facilities. It's not like we've got, we're just going to put them all in the Marriott. But but uh, an American congressman who has, and this is a guy with a perspective from the Honduras side, and, but, who knows who knows what the situation might be back home, who says, wow, this is a lot better than what they left. And, and, a, and an American goes and looks at this and says, these are deplorable. And, and by the way, the congressman was Henry Suar out of uh, South Texas. Go ahead, Carl Dubin. At this point, might have been made already, but the fact is, is that some of the drug lords in Honduras and, and some of those other countries are paying or, or, or collecting money from these kids uh, and their families to get them up here. So it, it, there's a whole lot of... Oh, there's an entire coyote economy being right. blasted out by these kids coming over. On top of the fact, CBS, I, think, I believe it was CBS did in a, a report just in the past 48 hours on this train of death where they are literally taking kids, eight-year-old kids, strapping them on to trains and getting them across the border. It's insane. This is insane. This continues to be, and to me it's another, it's not only a homeland security fallacy, but to me it is also another failure on this administration to deal with a foreign policy situation. Am I wrong in that, Congressman? Yeah, I think you're you're come come back in uh, six months and maybe I would agree with you, but uh, it's too soon I think yeah. to start placing blame. Really, really, you agree with that, Bob? Yeah, I think the first thing we ought to do. This is a humanitarian situation. We've got it. Let's, let's forget politics. Let's find a way to take care of those kids. I mean, and we've got to. You know, I don't know. If, if the kids come across, how do they how do they explain who they are? How do they know where they, how they, how do we know where their parents live? Who they are? What they're we don't know anything. I mean, it's it's just it's a disaster. Well, you know, you know what the funny thing about it is these people these people could end up being just a bunch of people who are uh, who get into the worst kind of problems living here in America in a place which where they're where they're in the almost an underground you know world. Carl Tuvin. Except some of them are going to go back. 
if they if they can have that. If they don't have parents here, they're going to be uh, they're going to be well. The, the, well, the situation the, the current situation is right now that they they are so overwhelmed with the number of children that are coming in that they can't interview these kids quick enough. And then on top of the fact. You've got a situation where these kids are saying, oh, I've got an uncle in Cleveland, and when they go find the uncle, the uncle's undocumented, so they can't find these people. The other fallacy is, in another display of how the administration doesn't talk to its own people, there's actually a database out there that the states have access to that have the names of other relatives undocumented in their programs as part of educational and social programs, and they don't even use that to help mitigate the crisis. Alan Moore. You know, one thing I think in, in reflecting, there, there's, there's been a lot of talk about in, in the Cantor loss, wow, that, that means immigration is dead, and, and yet there's not a, not a huge amount of evidence that immigration was that big an issue in his race. But this situation is a setback for immigration reform because it's a reminder that we don't have control over our borders. If kids can walk across, what about... Well, come across the Rio Grande on jet skis. Well, I mean, they, there's, there's areas where the, 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 the rivers are so low that you can actually walk, walk across. across. So, so it suggests that there's some massive holes in the fence, if you will. And, and in order to, to get... To get any kind of significant immigration reform, a lot of people say condition one, control the border, condition two, then start and, and provide some amnesty along immediately for people who are here, amnesty at least in terms of, of some kind of temporary status. So uh, there's, there's so many people when it's 30 to 40,000 coming, coming across per month, it's, it's hard to see anybody being able to credibly say, and I'm not one who blames the administration. I don't think they were. I think this this flood just highlights the fact that that there are there are big places where a lot of people can get across, including younger younger kids. Um, that that I don't I don't see a credible argument that yeah we we're we're close to having control of our borders. But but here's as somebody who's been involved with border security issues throughout decades of service, whether it was with the Coast Guard or helping write policy here in, 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 in D.C., I can tell you, you talk to anybody who is familiar with border security, and they'll be the first ones to tell you that when they talk about, and, and the Bush administration was, was also at fault of this, they talk about they want operational control of the border. Our border is so large, not just the, the, the land border, but our maritime border is so huge, we can't gain, quote-unquote, operational control of the border. We were never we, we we just don't have a country that's designed for that. As much as we would like to talk about it, it's a fallacy in policy. But the reality is, to me, when you implement a DACA deferred action program and it gets down south and people start saying, wait a minute, if I can get my kids into a school and they'll defer action it gives the parents reason to put them through this treacherous travel. On top of the fact, then they want to come and they go, oh, by the way, that kid's mine. And now we've got another immigration problem that's six to eight months down the road. This is a true domino effect. Go ahead. Well, <laughs> that, that was an interesting setup there. Uh, go ahead, Dan Lipner. But I, I will take something you said there as, as true. Our, our border, the attempt to police it, well, it, must, it needs to be done. 
the real issue here is something larger, and I'm going to wrap myself in the flag here momentarily. We are still a shining city on the hill. We, we are the hope. We are the dreams of people that are trying to escape whatever horrors that are waiting for them in their own countries are trying to come here. So that pesky little saying that the Statue of Liberty holds, Mr. Tired, you're weak, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, this is what these kids represent. And their parents are looking to get them out of harm's way and the place they see is the United States. I absolutely agree with you. I absolutely agree with you, Dan. We are a country based on immigrants. It was built on immigrants backed. And I believe that we should have a sensible immigration program. And I will go against my own party in saying locking down the borders is not the solution. Because I guarantee a lot of those Republicans that are calling for that wouldn't be here had we taken that position 80, 90, 100 years ago. Okay? I can tell you right now, his parents wouldn't, be able to, wouldn't have been able to come in because we didn't like the Irish. I can tell you – We still don't. <laughs> no, we just don't like his Irish ass. Your people wouldn't have been able to come in because we, at that time, we were scared of having a huge Jewish influx. You know, we, we would be a, a country of wasps. And this is a country built on immigrant labor. I think that the immigrants, the immigrant community has a place in our economy. It has a place in our country. It has a place in our future. However, this is not the way to do it, and this is definitely not the way to respond to it. But you never, you never really get to choose. Let's be clear on this. Immigration doesn't even dictated by us. It's also dictated by the folks who would like to escape. The Irish community were escaping poverty in Ireland. The European, the Eastern European community, almost identical. People escaping war. People escaping poverty. People escaping war. Hmm? Right. Absolutely. And in which case. We are, we are the country that is the receptacle of the motivated people that can come and, and to seeking to try and have a better life. And this is nothing to be ashamed of. Our inability to respond is something to be bothered by, but nothing more. I agree. I agree. Hey, uh, by the way, we're going to keep an eye on this situation because this is a situation that's going to be exploding over the next couple of weeks. We'll probably be talking about this again. Uh, but with that, now it's time for my favorite part of the show. It's Tell Me a Story, where we talk about the latest buzz, innuendo, and uh, hearsay that we've gotten inside the Beltway and outside the Beltway. Congressman Al, we got nine minutes left. Tell me a story real quick. I've been outside the Beltway for... Uh... <clears throat> That's your best story since. Bob Hines, tell me a story. <laughs> Bob Hines, tell me a story. How can I top that? You can't top that unless you say the same thing. You know, the Republicans in the House are uh, on Thursday running a series of elections. First of all, they're going to be voting on a uh, majority leader, and it's going to be uh, Kevin McCarthy McCarthy. out of California. No question about it. The next test is is the whip. Mr. McCarthy is moving up to replace Mr. Cantor, and he's becoming majority leader. And he's giving up the whip job. And the whip job is there are three candidates. Uh, Mr. Magruder from, I think, Mississippi, uh, Louisiana, no, Mississippi, I think. Uh, and Mr. Rookum, uh, uh, who is from Illinois, and uh, Mr. Salisi, I believe, from, from uh, uh, Louisiana. Right. Uh, the first, Mr. Magruder and Mr. Salisi are both members of the Tea Party. Right. Mr. Sol- Mr. Solisi is, 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 is the uh, chairman of the uh, Republican Study Committee, which is the Correct. conservative body within the body of the House of Representatives on the Republican side. My guess is he's going to win. Interesting. And I think that probably, uh, while I'm sure that uh, 
uh, the the, the, uh, the speaker would like to. Uh, I, I don't. I think quietly he might like that. He might like that happen. Yes, because you put somebody who is a relatively sensible person, who is a Tea Party person, but he is also a. a, a a partner in doing things that get get things done. I think he could be the next whip, and it would be a very good move if it happens. One minute. Can you tell me a story, Alan Moore? Yeah, we talked a little bit about the uh, the primary runoff in Mississippi next Tuesday between uh, the the longtime Senator Thad Cochran, who would become chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee if uh, a he's reelected and the Republicans uh, gain control. Uh, of the Senate uh, versus this insurgent Tea Party, uh, heavily Tea Party supported guy down there. And I, I'm going to go against conventional wisdom and predict that Cochran will squeak out a victory. Mississippi, <laughs> curiously, gets the greatest return on its dollars paid in federal taxes in terms of money that flows back to Mississippi than any other state in the country, about $3.07 per dollar. And not only, not only that, which does get people's attention, but if, 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 if Cochran steps down, the new chairman of appropriations will be uh, the senator from the neighboring state of Alabama, a guy named Richard, Al, uh, Richard Shelby. And it's, oh, and it's almost like oh, oh, one of Al's favorites. Do you want to give this role and power to Dick our Shelby. first rival, Alabama? <laughs> Weird things happen. I'm just going to predict that that Dad pulls this out, squeaks it out, but I will, you know. God willing. So God up. willing. Here's Carl, Carl Tubin, tell me a story. You got 30 seconds. Real fast. Real fast. 1958, state of Vermont. A, a forester from West Rupert, Vermont, by the name of Bill Meyer, came on the scene ran for Congress, red shot in the United Nations, and the draft, and the AAH bomb testing, and beat the grandson of Chester Arthur in, in that race. And served one term, and then went back to West Rupert. Uh, okay. <laughs> Dan Lipner, tell me a story. Here's a prediction. I am predicting after the election, we're going to have a new Supreme Court justice coming up for play, predicting a there's some rattling on the left that uh, Supreme Court Justice Ginsburg should be stepping down. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's been floating around. Uh, Bo Bergdahl. Bo Bergdahl, it came out this past week that, in fact, Bo Bergdahl had enlisted prior to joining the, prior to joining the Army, enlisted in the Coast Guard, and was kicked out after 26 days of boot camp at Cape May, New Jersey. Ironically, his discharge was conditionally honorable, but apparently there were some questions as to why he was bounced in the first place. So I just wanted some record. My Coast Guard wouldn't even take Bo Bergdahl. I'm glad, I'm glad the Army's got this problem. With that, I love that story. I love that story. With that, on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Alan Moore, Carl Tuvin, Dan Lipner, Denise Krepp, special thanks to Dr. Alex Crowther for joining us today from Rand Corporation. I'm your moderator, Radio Justin Russell. We will be back next week. Same time, same bad channel. Here on Blog Talk Radio Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob. The place to be. Absolutely. You can follow us on our website, www.backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on the Twitter at Backroom Politics. You can follow us on Facebook at Backroom Politics. And you can also 
Check us out on Instagram, at Backroom Politics. You can see pictures of our ugly mugs all over the Internet. With that, we'll see you next week. Have a good time, America. Bye-bye.